hymn number 744. We've been asked to mark that. Not only are we happy to do so, but certainly look forward to using that as all other songs during the course of our service. And isn't it delightful that we can lift up our voices, that we can express the heartfelt thanks that's ours unto the God of heaven who has been so good to us. As you know, we are in the midst of the Revelation on Sunday evening, and we continue our series of studies connected to that book tonight. And in fact, all of the lesson tonight will be drawn from Revelation chapter 3. So if you'd like to be turning to that chapter and hold your finger there as we use that chapter as our guide, and as really the fullness of our text for the duration of our study tonight. It certainly is true that during the course of our study so far, we've already been encouraged by noting many, many things of which... We could be quick to say some of these. This is already lesson number six in our series of studies on the Revelation. We began with a number of lessons connected to various issues, such as the overview of the book, the obstacles that often come before us as we study the book, as well as some of the matters about the history and the features of the book itself. But beyond that, we have already begun to look at the first three chapters and so far. We have noticed not only the prologue chapter of chapter 1, but we've also seen letters to five of the seven churches. One by one, we've looked at the letters to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis. And yet, that's where we closed our lesson some two weeks ago. And tonight, we pick up with a congregation at Philadelphia. I wonder what you and I might know about the church at Philadelphia. Certainly connected to that, I'd like to share just a very brief consideration of some matters that may be of benefit to us, but then cast more of a spotlight on the nature of what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say to that congregation at Philadelphia. This next slide again revisits for us a map, and certainly there were more cities in that part of Asia Minor than just the ones here, but I thought this map was a useful one in that it at least pointed out some of the features. And may I again point out that in many ways, there's a kind of a triangle. And their churches are in order. And so one by one, we have seen the letter to Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamos, and then Thyatira, and then Sardis. The last two will be the subject of our study tonight. And as you can well tell, Philadelphia was not a seaport town. It was well inside the actual coast. But tonight, what might be noted about the church at Philadelphia? What might be said about not only the region wherein that congregation was, but some of the features that the Lord had to expressly share to them and with them. This next slide goes even further than that to at least blow up that region in Asia Minor. And could I again point out that Philadelphia is here. I thought that map could be useful in that it points out where some of the notable rivers of that day and time were. And you'll notice that Philadelphia was rather interestingly situated between two rather well-known rivers of that day. And these rivers, you may notice, certainly would bring you near other congregations which are mentioned at other places in the New Testament. You may notice that Hierapolis is mentioned here, Sardis is mentioned to the north, but there's also Colossae. That happens to be the subject of our Wednesday night studies, the church at Colossae. So, in fact, when we just finished up that study recently, it led us right into Thessalonica. The next slide 
takes us to the actual text itself. May I invite you to turn to Revelation 3. I'll begin reading in verse number 7. And listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say to the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth." Behold, I come quickly. Hold that thou hast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from the God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Had you and I been in an assembly of the church at Philadelphia and that letter was read before us, what might have come to our mind? What messages might have come before us and what great lessons would we have taken from it? May I first share a bit about that region in Asia Minor. As far as history, it was situated on the main road that was about 20 miles east of Sardis. Not only that, it was about 80 miles east of Smyrna. Now, those congregations, again, I had already received letters from the Lord, and yet here's a unique one, a different one, that was directed to this church at Philadelphia. It was a region known as a very, very fertile area, known, quite frankly, for growing grapes. A large variety and a large abundance of grapes were grown in that part of Asia Minor. But I might also add this. Geologically, it was situated on a rather well-known fault, a geologic fault. And so earthquakes were somewhat common, rather prevalent. In fact, in the year A.D. 17, a devastating earthquake had virtually left Philadelphia in ruins. I might also point out that Laodicea had suffered in that same earthquake. And we'll get to that later in tonight's lesson. But it might also be fair to say that as we set aside some of the matters of history and some of the matters of geography, what did the Lord have to say to them? I have summarized some of the matters on that slide that's before you. and It begins like this. Jesus first identified Himself. Verse number 7, The one that's holy, the one that's true, the one that has the key of David. Let's pause long enough to add some detail, to add some interesting reflection based upon those particular statements. Jesus Himself had affirmed while He was here upon earth in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. And yet to this congregation, the one that's holy. Nobody can argue with that. And there's no competition to Him on that point either. 
and He is the one that's true. What the Lord has to say, what the Lord shares, is that which is identically and absolutely the matter that's true. The Lord does not tell that which is wrong. He does not flatter. He does not tell what men want to hear only. He says that which is true. But in addition to that, did you notice, the one who is also described as having the key of David. The key of David. When you and I give thought to the David and the person he was of the Old Testament and the features connected to that which he did, you and I can reflect rather quickly. The key of David, you and I remember, David himself declared in 2 Samuel 23, 2, as he spoke about the nature of the Word of God. Didn't he highlight there that that Word of God prompted him to write what he did? And how often, in some ways, is that key concept reiterated there? You remember it with me, right? In Matthew chapter 16, as Jesus himself would say unto those apostles, Whom do men say that I am? And after they had replied, Some say you're Jeremiah, some Elijah, some John the Baptist, some one of the prophets. Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter I suppose, in his rather bold way, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, among other things, said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, and I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The word key is mentioned. What did Peter do with that key? You and I know well what he did with it on the day of Pentecost. He stood and rather boldly proclaimed that day the beauty of the message of the Christ, and he referred back to the earnestness connected to what Jesus had revealed. Here you'll notice the word key is not connected to a New Testament array like that. It's connected to David. David's key. You and I might recognize in Psalm 89 that a number of things, of course, relate to the blessings and promise that were vouchsafed to David. And the continuance of the covenant through him and the nature of the kingdom that would be related to him and that kingdom would be an everlasting one connected to the church. And yet, as that kingdom is highlighted and as his key is mentioned, isn't it another reminder that Jesus said, I've got it. Men don't have this key. The Lord Jesus Christ has it. Again, verse 7 says, He that hath the key of David. Now, you and I know what you do with a key. You use it to open a door. You unlock and you proceed to open, and yet Jesus uses that in this way and says, He that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth. And shutteth, and no man openeth. Here Jesus makes reference to the fact, I can open a door that no man can shut, but I can also close a door that no man can open. The Lord told this to Philadelphia. Could I point out rather quickly and also rather interestingly that Jesus was quick to point out to them He commended them for keeping His Word. You and I have already noticed that several of these other churches previously addressed, they were in some cases rather strongly rebuked. Some of them, like Thyatira, had tolerated Jezebel. Others, like Pergamos, had tolerated the Nicolaitans. Others, like Smyrna, they too were about to suffer in a very dramatic way, and even they were urged and admonished as if it might otherwise not be so to be faithful and true. 
and yet to Philadelphia. He said, I know thy works. I have set before thee an open door. He just said that I have the key and I can open a door that no man can shut. And I can shut a door that no man can open. And now he says, Philadelphia, I've put before you. I put before you an open door, verse number 8, and no man can shut it. I would think that congregation became a bit excited. I would think to hear the Lord make that rather directed statement to them, I've put before you. He wasn't talking to the church at Sardis or Ephesus or the others. He was talking to Philadelphia. I've put before you an open door. And verse number 8 says, no man can shut it. It is in connection to that, I would close that slide by saying this. Philadelphia stands uniquely among the letters of the seven churches. The Lord had no rebuke for the church at Philadelphia. There was nothing He pointed to them and said, you've got to repent of this. He had said that to Pergamos and Sardis, and He had said that to Thyatira. But He didn't tell this congregation that, don't you know, and you and I have looked upon them now 20 centuries and we've been impressed with a letter to Philadelphia. But maybe as you close that particular slide, he did point out to them they had a little strength. Now might we point out, as we develop somewhat more interestingly, a little strength in and of itself is not a bad thing. Maybe that congregation had not been around that long. Maybe that congregation was still in the process of rather fervent and earnest growth. But Jesus did not rebuke them for the little strength. I would use that as an opportunity to encourage you and me today. There are those, I suppose, in our world who look upon sizable congregations, 500, 600, 800, 1,000 people, and we certainly are thankful in every way for the work of the Lord to be able to be promoted and encouraged. But may I ask, is it possible for a congregation to not be numerous, at least by worldly standards, and yet to be pleasing to the Lord? To be a congregation where the truth is set forward and the men and women and boys and girls love the Word of God, it excites them. And they strive to live after it faithfully. I would use the church at Philadelphia as a reminder that such a thing can not only happen, it may well have happened at Philadelphia. We don't know what could have been in the full mind of the Lord when He said they were of a little strength. Maybe their number was small. Maybe the number was larger. But I suspect if it were and they were still of little strength, there would have been occasion for rebuke. I suspect the church there was a bit on the small side. And yet, the Lord didn't rebuke them. But He did say, I've put in front of you an open door and nobody can close it. They had apparently had opportunity. And they had the capacity to do that which was in the Word of God and that which was pleasing to Him. May I say that our numbers aren't like many other churches in our land in terms of size, even here at Pippin. But we nonetheless have the intent, the desire, and the heart that we here could carry out that work of the Lord and do so in a way pleasing unto God. May we ever intend it to be that way. 
this congregation at Philadelphia. As you can see on that slide, the Lord did go on to make some additional statements characterizing the place that they were and some causes that they ought to keep in mind. It would begin like this. Verse number 9. I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not. Now there were some in that Philadelphia region, and they did make an alliance, an association, a claim to be connected to Judaism and to be, in fact, those of the synagogue. And he mentions it there, the synagogue of Satan. He says they claim to be Jews, but they're not there's another instance in the Word of God where men may claim one thing, but quite different may actually be the facts of the case. You and I know quite well that such a thing is so often painted in a negative light in the Word of God. I would surely point out to each of us that the Word of God uses references to Judaism in a way that's much more connected to your life and mine today. Look with me, for example, at Galatians 6.16, where there you and I today are the Israel of God. That's you and me. Christians of today are the Israel of God. You and I could add to that statements like Romans 11.26, Yea, all Israel shall be saved. May I be quick to point out that there are those who use a verse like that one and say, There it is. God is going to save the people who live in the literal land of Israel. And that's why the Jews and everybody else have got to revisit, return to that land. And that verse doesn't teach that. The context won't permit it. You and I are the Israel of God today. No wonder in that light, Isaiah 59 verse 20, which Paul quoted, is an Old Testament passage that teaches us in no uncertain terms about the nature that you and I are the blessed Christians of the day today and we are those who occupy the Israel of God. Jesus pointed out in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, that few there be that find it. And you and I, though we desire that men and one and all would come to a knowledge of the truth, we know very well that God allows them to make their choices. As you close that slide with me, what an exhortation to Philadelphia. Not that he rebuked them, but in light of the difficulties that were soon to come their way, you be strong and you hold fast. May I point out the words of verse 11, which was the lesson text of the night. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. I hope we each are mindful of the way that the Lord stated that. And the language that he used, he said, I come quickly. There have been those who would look upon that and say, was the Lord mistaken? He told Philadelphia he was coming quickly, and now 20 centuries have passed, and he still hasn't come. Did Jesus make a mistake? Oh, he made no mistake. But what you and I find is that the coming to which he referred was not his literal coming to close the affairs of time. It was the coming in light of the difficulties that they were soon to face. And he admonished them, even in the duress that was to be theirs. Note again, verse number, number 12, you've got to be faithful. Now, they had been faithful in the past, but they needed it because matters were going to get serious and matters were going to get dire. 
that kind of a message is needful for you and for me just as much as it was for them. I would add to that the following. The Lord issued to them a promise. May I invite you to notice the way He worded it in verse number 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write him upon him my new name. We will encounter later in the book that city coming out of heaven again. It will be the opening couple of verses of Revelation 21. It will be a time in which all the aftermath of the book will be gone. The matters connected to the beasts, the matters connected to the dragon, the matters connected to the vials, they'll all be gone by then. After the dust all settles and the debris is cleared, only one glorious scene remains. And for the faithful, they'll get to enjoy it. You know what it is. It's heaven. To the church at Philadelphia, Jesus himself was able to say to them, if you overcome, and there's the key word of the book, if you overcome, I will make you a pillar in in the temple of my God, and you'll go out no more. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the finality following the day of judgment. And if you hold fast and don't let anybody take your crown, remain true and loyal to the God of heaven, look at what you'd store for you. He goes on to say, I'll write upon you my new name. And that precious city of which we shall study later will be theirs. The church at Philadelphia, what a message. What a beautiful presentation. And finally he says in verse number 13, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I would think that congregation was pretty excited upon hearing the letter the Lord wrote them. Wouldn't you and I today, Pippin, be excited if Jesus sent us a letter that said that? I know we wouldn't be thrilled about the thought of greater persecution. I know we wouldn't be thrilled about knowing that matters are going to greatly increase their intensity against us and the Roman Empire perhaps will levy a great war against us. I know that by itself wouldn't be exciting. But to hear Jesus say, you've not denied my name. And if you overcome and hold fast, I'll write my name on you and the new Jerusalem is where you'll be. That kind of message is as useful and as delightful to you and me today as it was to them. To the church at Philadelphia, verse 13 closes what the Lord had to say to them. As I transition the slide to then what comes next, why don't we close the chapter by looking at the seventh and final of these instructive letters which the Lord directed to each one of the seven churches of Asia. Beginning in verse number 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. 
Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh, there's our key word again, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as also I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's reflect upon the church at Laodicea. It's the seventh and final one. And as has been the case of the others, a few initial comments about not only that region, but a few initial thoughts about the church of the Laodiceans. First, it was a city known for its wealth. In fact, it had often been appreciated that way for at least several decades prior to this particular time. It was located about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. As far as the ancient world, a notable banking center in the Roman Empire was there. It was also known for its textiles, and interestingly enough, one of the finest medical schools of the ancient world was there. Today, you and I know about the place of medical schools, and sometimes that which occurs in their vicinity, if people come from all over, today folks travel a long way to go to Vanderbilt because of their medical center. Or folks travel a long way to go to Memphis due to their medical center there. That ancient city of Laodicea had a well-known medical center. Isn't that interesting? I might point out, though, that we should go further than that. When Jesus addressed them, he didn't have a lot to say about their banking business. He didn't have a lot to say about the medical center. He didn't have a whole lot to say about the other features like the textile industry. He rather quickly jumped into his discussion like this, verse 14. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Could I offer a bit of commentary on some of the features of that little verse? First of all, the Amen the one who is the affirmation of that which God has brought to bear on this world in which we live. Do we not learn in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 16, that the Lord actually was the creator. He carried out the creative ideas of the Father. Jesus is the one that actually brought it about. No wonder it says here, the beginning of the creation of God. That doesn't mean Jesus was created it means He was the one that carried out the Creator activities, the beginning of God's creative activities in terms of carrying them out. Sometimes today, you and I might describe it this way, Jesus was the executor of those creative commands that, the God, that God the Father gave. Isn't it a beautiful thing then to hear the statement of John as he addressed these matters? In verse number 15, I know thy works. So they at Laodicea, as had been true in every other case before, 
Seven times now the Lord had said, I know thy works. No congregation can, can conceal who they are and what they do from the all-seeing eye of the God of heaven. In Proverbs 15.3, the ancient writer Solomon would say it like this, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. That's not only true of matters that take place in the world, it's true of congregations. The Lord knows where their heart lies. He knows the kind of church that they really are. It is with that as a background that Jesus then leads me to say this. Don't you find it interesting and almost ironic? There was no rebuke for the church at Philadelphia, and there's no commendation for the church at Laodicea. I can't find one positive thing he said to the church at Laodicea. I suppose if you and I remember, the thing about Laodicea that first comes to mind is it made Jesus sick. It made the Lord sick. I would spew thee out of my mouth, he would say. Oh, that must almost cause us to almost be disgusted to think, could a congregation cause the Lord to be sick? It sure did at, Philadelphia, sure did at Laodicea. Oh, you and I today would never want to be cataloged among those that would make the Lord sick. But along with it, why don't we develop those points as you can see on that slide. In verse number 15, I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. They just floated along, it would seem. They weren't on fire for the Lord, but they didn't deny His name either. They just seemingly went about their business, priorities elsewhere. They would assemble, no doubt. They would go through some motions of worship, no doubt. But their heart was somewhere else. Maybe it was in the banking business. Maybe it was in the textile business. Maybe it was in the other matters connected to the growing of grapes in the area. The text doesn't say, but it doesn't matter where else it was. Jesus said, I wish you were either cold or hot. I wish you were one way or the other. But because you're neither one, you make me sick. And I'll spew you out of my mouth. You see, as you can well notice on the slide... Certainly, Jesus would wish one and all congregations to be hot for Him, to be desirous of serving Him with faithfulness, to be motivated with excitement to serve Him with enthusiasm. But isn't it interesting? Even Jesus admits, though it wouldn't be my desire, I'd rather you be cold in the way you are now. I wonder what the Lord meant by that. Jesus would have preferred them cold than lukewarm? Absolutely. Every one of us knows what the Lord meant by that. Those that do the greatest damage to the church are not those that are stone cold. They're never going to attend anyway. The ones that do the greatest harm are those that are hypocrites. They'll attend sometimes with their heart in it. And their acquaintances and friends and family and neighbors, they all know it. And yet they set an example for those others. And because they're neither cold nor hot, their family and friends and otherwise, well, if that's what the church is like, what good is it? I'm as good as he is. I talk as good as she does. She's supposed to be a Christian. 
he's supposed to be a committed, faithful servant to the Lord. I do as much as he does. They do the most damage to the Lord's church. Jesus said, you make me sick. Isn't that a challenge to all of us? To never allow ourselves to become lukewarm for the Lord, but to ever be on fire, if you please, and hot for that which is His will. As you journey forward in that discussion, we come to verse number 17. For there's something else that ought to be noted. This one is very strong if we're mindful of some of the situations that are its background. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. This congregation at Laodicea thought they could take care of themselves. I'm wealthy. I'm rich. When that earthquake I mentioned earlier came through and devastated matters in Laodicea, that church was offered help to rebuild, and they wouldn't take it. We'll take care of it ourselves. And they were wealthy enough to do it. But isn't it interesting? They thought, I don't have any need of anything else, including the Lord. And they didn't have Him. Verse number 17, they thought they were rich. But in fact, later in that verse, we learned they were poor. Verse number, verse number 17, they thought they had need of nothing. In fact, they didn't have hardly anything. We learn in verse number 17, they're increased with goods. But those goods don't connect you to God by themselves. In fact, we seemingly learn as the verse closes that here is what they really were. They thought they were rich. They thought they were increased with goods. They thought they needed nothing, and yet Jesus said, here's the way you really are. You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And they didn't think they were any of that. Do you recall a moment ago I mentioned the medical school of the ancient world? One of them was located there. Isn't it interesting what their specialty was? Their specialty was diseases of the eye, ophthalmic diseases. And some of the finest eye salve of the ancient world was made in the vicinity of Laodicea. And isn't it ironic that Jesus said, you're blind. The very place where there's ointment to be had in the church of the Lord and you don't have it. The very place where the finest ice I have there ever it could be is right at your disposal, and you're blind. Don't you find that ironic? They didn't think they were blind, but they were. They didn't think they were poor, but they were. They didn't think they were wretched, but they were. They didn't think they were miserable, but they were. I suppose that reminds us that it's the Lord's estimation that really matters. It's not so much what I think of myself. It's not so much what you may think of yourself. How does the Lord think of me? And how does the Lord think of you? You or I might come to think that we have need of nothing. And we might come to think of ourselves like those in Laodicea did. I've got everything. And yet in the perspective of Jesus, He might say, you're miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked. You see, none of that they thought was true of themselves, but yet the Lord said it is true. And I suppose the church at Laodicea is one of the finest lessons in all the Scriptures to ensure that we look 
at ourselves through the spectacles of the Lord, not through our own vision. As you close that slide with me, isn't it a matter of great intrigue to not allow ourselves to be deceived, to look at ourselves differently than the way that we actually are? It is with that said, I'll close that slide then as we come to this one and look at one final set of ideas about the church at Laodicea. It is to be noted that the Lord did admonish of them in verse 19, as many as I love. Jesus still loved them. It's not that He had turned His back upon them. They had turned their back upon Him. He loved them and said, because of that, I urge you to, rebu I urge you to repent. I rebuke you. And so it is in verse number 19, be zealous and repent. You know, there's a zeal connected to repentance, isn't it? And you'll notice that they were given this beautiful promise, a promise that if they would overcome, verse 21, that they would be granted the blessing of coming over and dwelling with Him. It's another reminder, isn't it, about the sheer exquisiteness that goes with faithful service to the Lord. Let's close our lesson tonight by summarizing one thing about each of these seven letters that you and I have noted. I chose the one thing to be this. I know that we could certainly pick more than just this one. But in each one of the seven cases, there was a promise issued to those that would overcome. And I just wanted to draw your attention by pulling together all seven of them. To the church at Ephesus, to those that overcome... They were in, be in the midst of the paradise of God. Doesn't that sound great? To the church at Smyrna, to those that overcome, they were particularly told they would not be heard of the second death. To the church at Pergamos, to those that overcome, they were told they would be granted the opportunity to eat of the hidden manna and that they'd be given a white stone. And that stone would contain a very special and precious name. To the church at Thyatira, to those that, were, that would overcome, they'd be given power over the nations. And with that power, they would rule that greatness of iron. And the beauty of it, they'd be given the morning star. To the church at Sardis, to those that overcome, they were told they'd be clothed in white raiment. And to be clothed in that white raiment immediately took us, your name not blotted out of the Lamb's book of life, your name would be confessed before my Father in heaven. Philadelphia, to those that overcome, a pillar in the temple of God. And in so doing, in light of that location, there'd be no more going out. And you and I noted just a moment ago in the lesson tonight what sweetness it is to contemplate that heavenly Jerusalem coming down. Finally, to the church at Laodicea, to those that overcome, you'd be granted the blessing of sitting with Christ at His throne. We've looked at the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. We've invested some consideration in each of them and been reminded of a number of lessons and truths. It is the case that next time we'll journey into chapter 4 and we'll look at this tremendous scene that John saw in heaven and we'll learn lessons about that one as well. This very night, why don't we close then our lesson like this. As we reflect upon the letters to the seven churches of Asia, one of the matters we've already seen is that the Lord knows our works. He told every one of them that. 
He knows about you and me, and He knows what kind of life we live, and He knows where our treasure is located as we learn this morning. Tonight, if we could be of some aid, some assistance, we would be certainly happy to do that. If there's someone in the assembly tonight that would wish to render initial obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, won't you hear the truth? Won't you repent of your sins? Won't you, in fact, confess the sweet name of Jesus? And won't you be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins? If we could again help tonight in that way, it would be our privilege. But if you have known the way of Christianity, and maybe the letters to the seven churches of Asia have brought to your attention some things are amiss, we would want you to know it's the Lord tugging at your heart through His Word pricking you and challenging you to do different. Tonight, if you'd wish to make confession of sins in a public way, to in fact make confession of them and desire repentance of them, obviously, we'd be happy to pray unto God. And it would be an opportunity for you to be drawn back to a place of fidelity and faithfulness. Tonight, if we could be of help in any of these ways, this song of encouragement has been selected. We'll use it as a time convenient and opportune to invite anyone to come that might, might wish to do so while together we stand and while we sing.